Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm guest host Rick Samprin. The U.S. will not be lifting any existing travel restrictions due to concerns over the Delta variant and the rising number of U.S. coronavirus cases. What kind of implications could this have? The pandemic has changed the way we think about long-term care in this country. According to a new survey from the Angus Reid Institute, three-quarters of Canadians believe long-term care homes need significant changes. But do we think it'll happen? And the Ontario Liberals are calling for new measures to help prevent the looming fourth wave. Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca joins us with the details. The Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly show on 900 CHML. The White House confirming yesterday that the U.S. will not lift any existing travel restrictions at this point due to concerns over the highly transmissible COVID-19 Delta variant and the rising number of cases in America. And this decision comes after a senior level White House meeting last Friday. Now, we learned last week U.S. Homeland Security said American land borders with Canada and Mexico will remain closed to non-essential travel until at least August 21st. And that's even after Canada said it would begin allowing in fully vaccinated American tourists starting August the 9th and international travelers on September the 7th. For more insight and analysis on this topic, let's bring in our next guest, Brian J. Karam, political analyst for CNN, White House correspondent for Playboy, and host of Just Ask the Question podcast. Brian, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you doing? Not too bad. Is the U.S. being too cautious or extra cautious here? <laughs> the U.S. is a lot of things, but cautious. I don't know that I could... The, the upper levels of government are far more cautious than state and local government, and um, I think that in many ways, um, the Biden administration has become very cautious, overly cautious. But the big problem is because local and state governments have been so injudicious and so uh, exasperatingly, mind-numbingly stupid in how they apply uh, the problems of COVID that it's, it's creating a, a situation in the United States that's untenable. I would imagine that border states, especially New York, Michigan in particular, which feasts on tourism dollars from Canadians, they, they have to be putting a lot of pressure on the White House. Yeah, I, there's a lot of pressure on the White House to open. That's true. There's a lot of pressure to open up the borders, especially with Canada, because uh, of, well, because of tourism dollars and open up uh, tourism internationally. There, A lot of the airlines have been putting pressure on. But you have a problem where People in the United States have decided that this is a political problem instead of a health problem. So you have people not wanting to get uh, mask, don't want to mask if they're not vaxxed, and people who don't want to vax who think that the government is trying to enter their life and ruin their life. And so it's creating chaos in the U.S., and it's a very difficult situation to deal with. White House officials reportedly discussing the potential of mandating COVID-19 vaccines for international visitors, uh, but we're hearing that that idea remains in the discussion stage. Do you, do you know any more about that? No, that, that'll be picked up later on this week. I think that as we heard yesterday in our briefing uh, with, um, uh, with Press Secretary Jen Psaki, they're going to try and rely on the science of the situation, so the CDC will have that uh, decision, and the White House will follow their guidelines. We're chatting with Brian J. Karam, political analyst for CNN, White House correspondent for Playboy, and host of Just Ask the Question podcast here on The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton, Rick in for Bill. 
Is a number being floated around in terms of how many Americans have to be vaccinated before travel rules are tweaked? Are we hearing any of that? Well, uh, in the beginning, we wanted to have 70% of the uh, population fully vaxxed by July 4th. That didn't happen. Yesterday in the briefing, again, they pushed toward, they were saying 60% have had, uh, are fully vaxxed and 70% have been uh, partially vaxxed, at least one vaccination shot. But no, they haven't really spelled out what numbers will be needed to to open up borders. But I, I think it it's going to, the, the political pressure to do so, the economic pressure to do so, will be driven by, uh, will have to, um, exceed to the science, but the science is showing that there's a real big problem with the, uh, with the uh, variant that's out there. And the Delta variant of the COVID virus is uh, what's scaring everyone half to death in government right now. Is the White House uh, on this border issue? I know there's a lot of tentacles to it, but does the CDC's decision or, or weight on the matter uh, weigh more than others? Yeah, there, the, White House is unlike uh, uh, former President Trump, who treated it as a political issue. The current administration is trying to treat it as uh, just a science issue. So when the science says it's safe, they'll open up. And that, since the science is undetermined on, you know, what's exactly safe? Do we have to have herd immunity? Are we setting an arbitrary uh, goal of 70%? Whatever the CDC says, the science uh, determines that the goal will be. That's what the uh, White House says it will do. There was some suggestion last week that because the American border with Mexico is going to remain closed, then the U.S.-Canada border will remain in lockstep uh, in terms of its closure. Has there any been discussion about reopening one border as, as opposed to the other, or will both open at yeah. the same time? I Well, that remains to be seen. However, the... Uh, U.S.-Canadian border does not carry with it the political stigma that the U.S.-Mexican border carries with it. So if there were a decision, uh, if if they unilaterally decided to open one and not the other, it would not surprise anyone if they did so. Um, But right now there is no, I've heard of no specific discussion about that. What's your best guess for when the border restrictions will be relaxed? Oh, I'm horrible at guessing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the last guy to guess. I, 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 I'm the guy if I had every uh, horse in a horse race but one, that one would win. Uh, but it, it, logically what they're talking about is within the next few weeks of, of making a decision. Now, what that decision will be, we don't know. Well, well we will uh, keep our uh, finger on the pulse, and I'm sure that, uh, Brian, you will as well. Thanks for joining us this morning. You're welcome. Brian J. Karam is a political analyst for CNN, White House correspondent for Playboy, and host of the Just Ask the Question podcast. Hey, speaking of podcasts, get the Bill Kelly Show podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And hey, while you're at it, go after the uh, Just Ask the Question podcast. I'm sure it's good. I haven't tuned in, so I can't give it a recommendation. But uh, hey, Brian's a stand-up guy. Um, this is what White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki had to say about the border closure last week. We are continuing to review our travel restrictions. Any uh, decisions about reopening travel will be guided by our public health and medical experts. Uh, we uh, take this incredibly seriously, but we look uh, and are guided by our own medical experts and not in a, we're not, uh, I wouldn't uh, look at it through a reciprocal uh, intention. 
Yesterday, her tune did not change. We will maintain existing travel restrictions at this point for a few reasons. The more transmissible Delta variant is spreading both here and around the world. Driven by the Delta variant, cases are rising here at home, particularly among those who are unvaccinated and appear likely to continue in the weeks ahead. And, you know, we, we've heard from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau a, a couple of times on the border issue, and he has said, and listen, rightfully so, that each country makes its own decisions. Canada has made its decision in terms of reopening to fully vaccinated Americans by August the 9th. There's no way that Canada or any other country is going to force uh, the U.S. or any other country to reopen its borders when it serves them best. Um, the U.S. is going to do what the U.S. is going to do. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the seven-day average of new cases in the States was up 53% over the previous week. And the Delta variant now comprises more than 80% of new cases in the U.S. That is absolutely startling. We heard similar numbers here in Canada. 90% since uh, you know the vaccine was available last December, 90% of new cases are among the un vaccinated you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml a survey from the angus reed institute suggests the pandemic has changed the way that most canadians think about their future with long-term care we get some of the details from global's sandy salerno more than 80 percent of canadians say their views on long-term care have changed since covid19 hit about half of the people the angus reed institute surveyed say they now dread the thought of themselves or their loved ones ending up in one of these facilities three quarters of respondents say significant changes if not a complete overhaul needs to happen in long-term care and although divided on just how to do that exactly more than half of those surveyed said they'd be willing to dip into their own wallets to fund improvements which could go to anything from hiring more staff or having more inspections since the pandemic began more than 15,000 Canadians living in long-term care have died of COVID-19 Sandy Salerno Global News. Let's speak with Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care and professor at Ontario Tech University. Dr. Stamatopoulos, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm well. How are you? I'm not too bad. Um, Well, this survey from the Angus Reid Institute really isn't surprising given that long-term care residents have accounted for most of the COVID-19 deaths here in Canada. I mean, there's no question about it. These are completely understandable and entirely warranted given what we've seen and what has happened. And I also want to point out that these are the first results like this, right? So last year in May, May 2020, uh, there was another national poll commissioned by the National Union of Public and General Employees that found, you know, something very similar in addition to the fact that, you know, 80%, 86% of Canadians want long-term care to fall under the Canada Health Act and to be treated like hospitals. And that, you know, 81% wanted to see the feds invest whatever money and resources is needed in order to you know, create a a sufficient and safe long-term care sector. So this isn't new. Everyone saw what happened, and people are terrified. You mentioned terrified. Another word they're using is dread. About half of those surveyed say they now dread the thought of themselves or their loved ones being in long-term care. That's not a situation we want to find ourselves in. No, and listen, people that have had experiences with long-term care, because most people, until you ex- live this world, you don't realize how bad it is. Me, myself included, being one of those families that didn't realize, you know, you always dread. Everyone wants to age at home. Everyone wants to, to frankly, die in their own private households. But home care is a, an abysmal joke, quite frankly. 
and we don't have the support so that people can age in place appropriately. So the, it's always a, a crisis situation. Often families find themselves in a situation where there is no alternative and they're effectively kind of pushed into long-term care if they need that substantial round-the-clock round the care, right? So, you know, families I talk to from across Canada, you know, have a horror story after horror story. This isn't new. Unfortunately, the majority of people that have yet to experience long-term care don't realize. The pandemic only shone a light on how terrible things were and, of course, exacerbated it to a whole new level of terrible. And the fact that it has not been sufficiently addressed, certainly in Ontario, but really Canada proper, um, really shows you the, the lack of respect and, and care we assign to our seniors, frankly. Here where is uh, where the survey from the Angus Reid Institute really uh, gets some teeth. That is, three-quarters of respondents say significant changes, if not a complete overhaul, should happen in long-term care. The question is, it doesn't appear that anything has really changed since the start of the pandemic, has it? No, and, and that's the, the horrifying part of all of us that have been watching this, paying attention, really advocating for change. How little has actually, you know, how little change has been spurred on by what is, without any question of a doubt, the worst collective long-term care tragedy in our entire history. And yet nothing appreciable has happened to address the shortcomings. And we have fought and we have been fighting for, you know, frankly, nationalized reform. We want national standards that are actual standards, legislated standards with teeth, criminal charges, you know, hefty financial penalties, the same things that, you know, differing provinces can indeed do on their own. But we want to see a system not unlike how the Canada Health Act was initially created, where you provide the incentives to the provinces to buy in and inadvertently. And what happens is that they do. This is how we have our public, you know, acute care and physician service, you know, model of, you know, universal care was created in the 80s, right, under Tommy Douglas. We want to see the same similar thing happen with long-term care. Frankly, it was a massive mistake not to include long-term care properly under the Canada Health Act. No doubt about it. Our guest is Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care, also a professor at Ontario Tech University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill this week. We're talking about a survey from the Angus Reid Institute that suggests the pandemic has changed the way most Canadians think about their future with long-term care, and most of them, or about at least half of them, dreading the thought of themselves or their loved ones being in that situation. The survey also saying, and this is where... You know, it, it takes money to make some changes. Obviously, 55% say they would be willing to pay an increase of 2% in their tax rate to fund improvements to long-term care. A, do you believe that number? And B, is that enough? Listen, everyone I've spoken to and the general public, when you, you know, really read the room, so to speak, they will, they want this to be fixed. People are horrified with what happened. What, what for us that have been watching it, and me in particular, and I'll, I'll say this, uh, what I'm most horrified about is that those with the power to change this, be it our federal government, our prime minister, and our varying premiers, have failed to act in the urgency that is required based on what happened. I mean, <laughs> the fact that we are still sitting here stalling action is horrifying given how many seniors and persons with disabilities died. And, and you know, it reminds me of an op-ed 
New York Times op-ed back in March, at the start of the pandemic, by a gentleman, Elia Kukla, who said, you know, what, what we are seeing was what he said, a pestilence of ableism and ageism that has been unleashed, right? And, and the truth is, it's the chronically sick, disabled people and our seniors have been viewed as acceptable losses. And you try to argue with me the opposite, given what we saw happen and how little change has been effectively put into play. The fact that our prime minister himself promised national standards, you know, put on this whole show that this is horrifying, which it was, but yet to date, <laughs> nothing has happened. The criminal charges that he said would be coming never happened. We have homes in Ontario where up to 30, you know, seniors died from dehydration. I mean, we're talking neglect contributing to death and nothing has happened. Nothing has happened. No home has lost their license. No charges have been laid. We have, you know, families that I've been dealing with with Orchard Villa have been trying to get charges laid. have been trying to get the Durham Region Police involved, and yet still nothing. Why do we let these bad actors off the hook? Why are we letting this happen in long-term care? You try to tell me if this happened in daycares with children, that there wouldn't be charges, that there wouldn't be, frankly, hell to pay. The fact that we are sitting here letting this happen to our seniors and persons with disabilities is frankly disgusting and it's very telling of those who have the power to change it and aren't. So why aren't we as up in arms with, you know, the golden generation? You know, unfortunately, I think a lot of this comes to, down to, you know, you see these people as disposable because they're not contributing, quote unquote, to the economy. And, and I'm not saying this is the public, because at least the public that I, you know, interchange with, is horrified and they want the change. And, and it's very clearly demonstrated in national serving data that shows that people want to change and will do whatever they have to do, even if it's paying out of their own pockets to do so. So really, I think this is a problem at the top. This is a problem with our governments that have, for successive decades, passed the long-term care buck onto another, presumably because it's too difficult for them to actually do what needs to be done. And, and it's just, I, I can't wrap my head around why we're not doing what needs to be done. And, and I really hope when, when, it, when it comes to the next election that this is going to be the election you know, issue that it should be. Because this was a hor- I mean, Canada ranked among the worst of all OECD countries. I mean, this is not just, you know, oh, we did kind of bad in Canada. I mean, we are the horrifying international embarrassment with how we care for our seniors and our persons with disabilities. So I'm really praying that, you know, change is not completely lost and, and the elections really show these officials what's important. And barring that, you know, I throw my hands up in the air. I don't know what to say. Our guest is Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care, professor at Ontario Tech University, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill this week. You mentioned the election. Um, You know, politicians make promises. Uh, They say, you know, we're going to spend this much on this issue. And sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Do you think there's a politician or a political party out there that has not only the wherewithal or the plan to overhaul or tweak or improve the system, whatever that looks like, and do you think they'll follow up with that? Is there the political will out there, do you think? Um, there's no question about it that, you know, since the start of my advocacy, it's, it's not, you know, the people that have reached out to me to try to come up with solutions have frankly been the NDP. So Jagmeet Singh has been amazing, and, and, and they've created, they've actually created a platform for how to move us forward, which obviously is going to require significant financial investment, but anything anything that is worthwhile takes investment and will pay off in the end. We all know this, right? You got to make, what is it, put money to make money? You got to make, spend money to make money. That's the idea. The same applies here. So, you know, th- this idea that we can't 
or we shouldn't invest because other things are more worthwhile. I, I can't get my head around that argument. But yes, I, the NDP has been the party that at least has reached out to me. I have seen them create platforms, platforms that make sense, um, that are feasible. So, and the parties that don't, I, you know, I, I'm, it's very disappointing and it doesn't take long <clears throat> to look at conflicts of interest and to look at which parties have, you know, known contributors or investors or don't, you know, people that donate to their campaigns that are affiliated with the for-profit long-term care industry. So you have to wonder, you know, is this just an evidence, you know, of a, I spoke to a reporter yesterday who called it crony capitalism, and there's far too much intermingling between elected officials and certain parties and the for-profit long-term care sector, which is a very powerful lobby. And, and frankly, the, what they have wanted has been what has been achieved in Ontario over the course of the pandemic, being from Bill 218 to policies that allow them to de-skill labor and to literally hire anyone off the street to work in long-term care without any health care expertise. So, yeah. We're chewing on the latest survey from the Angus Reid Institute that suggests the pandemic has changed the way we think about our future in long-term care. And at least half of those surveyed say they are dreading the thought of being in a long-term care home. Uh, you referenced, uh, you know, long-term care being fully integrated within the public health system. What's the likelihood of that? And, and how much heavy lifting needs to be done for that to happen? Listen, they, they know what they can do. I've also worked with the Ontario Health Coalition that have put together documents submitted directly to the Prime Minister himself, legal documents that have shown them how they can do this. I mean, one easy step towards that goal is by making Rivera public. Rivera was one of the largest for-profit long-term care chains in Canada, is actually owned by the federal government, um, our pension uh, you know, sector. So we could make that public tomorrow. And that has been something that the NDP has been advocating in addition to several unions and, and you know, a variety of different individuals to say this is a very good step towards that. But frankly, we have a co- the contracts in long-term care. So they assign licenses to long-term care homes that are between 25 to 30 years. So this is generational. I mean, it is no you know, insignificant thing to hand out a license. And many homes and many families right now are petitioning against, let's say, Orchard Villa, who is up to get a 30-year license after what happened, after what we all saw, one of the worst military-occupied homes. Um, and they are considering giving them a 30-year license which is horrifying to me and to the families affected. So we we can make different decisions. We can start investing in municipal ownership, which is possible. We can prioritize the licenses to go to people that have demonstrated success, certainly during COVID, but well before that, which is frankly the municipal sector, which is by far done the best. And then after that, the not-for-profit sector, but nowhere does it show in the evidence that we should support for-profit long-term care? We have a significant body of literature, both pre-pandemic and clearly all throughout, that has shown that this sector fails. The for-profit model fails everybody, fails the workers, it fails the residents, it fails these families. The only people that win in the for-profit model are the shareholders and the CEOs, make no mistake. They have a fiduciary responsibility to make profit. And what do you think is going to happen to make profit? You have to cut back on care. I mean, this can be said in any, and, and look at the American healthcare. This can be said in any privatized sector. Somebody suffers in order to make a profit. And we saw case in point how that happened during this pandemic. So it, it, providing any some sort of investment and keeping this sector going is is not only deeply unethical, but is completely against the evidence that exists. 
So are we an evidence-based society? Or, or would you just go with the whims of the for-profit sector, which clearly has ingratiated itself very well into government? We're a long way from a perfect system, but in a perfect world, what would that system look like? What needs to be in place? Yeah. What needs to be deleted? I want to see long-term care treated like acute care. I want it to fall under the Canada Health Act or some sort of you know separate Medicare legislation that treats it not unlike hospitals. I mean, everyone saw what happened. Hospitals were protected. Hospitals had the supports. They had the resources. Long-term care was left on its own to suffer, and that's exactly what happened. We need to keep it in the public health sector. When you look at the evidence, it's, it's the homes that were most similar to public ownership, meaning the municipal homes, that fared the best. And it's for a variety of reasons. You know, their staffing model, their care model, um, you know, who they bring into these homes to provide the care, how they train them, the continuity of care, everything. In the for-profit sector, I mean, there's a million reasons why it failed, and we all know what they are. Um, so we just really need to bring it under public ownership, nonprofit delivery. Zero profit should have any role in long-term care, certainly after what we saw. And we need to start treating them like not unlike hospitals, right? Making sure we have, and keep in mind, hospitals have gone through you know, the success of financial cutbacks too, and they need more investment. But compared to long-term care, oh my God. I mean, there's just zero of the kind of investment we've needed. And this has been decades. It's not just these governments in place right now. This goes back 20, 30 years. Um, but we definitely need to bring it into the public sector. There's no question about it. That's the only way we're going to see significant and meaningful change. Otherwise, you're just putting Band-Aids on, on bullet wounds. Dr. Stamatopoulos, I love the passion that you bring to the table. You're an awesome advocate for this uh, sector of our healthcare system. Um, continue pushing the ball forward, and we'll be right alongside helping you do so. <laughs> Thank you. I will. Thanks for the time today. Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, co-founder of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care, also a professor at Ontario Tech University, and brings up a number of you know critical points. And that for-profit care, we've seen it really become... A, you know, a a level of care that is obviously there, but compared to a municipally run facility, a a nonprofit facility, um, I think the care number one is night and day. I think the uh, attention to those finer details in terms of when things need to be tweaked or changed or pivoted, especially during the pandemic, uh, we saw some brutal cases in those for-profit facilities. Dr. Amin Arya is a palliative care physician who works in long-term care facilities and says long-term care needs to be an election issue. I think everyone is now aware of long-term care. I actually talk to people, my neighbors, friends, who are very worried about ending up in long-term care homes or, you know, as their parents are aging, they're very worried that they will, you know, their parents will end up in one of these homes and not receive proper care. So uh, this has to be an issue uh, at the ballot box. This has to be an election issue. And we really have to hold all of our political parties accountable to make sure that the changes are done so that our seniors finally get the life that they deserve. He also says giving long-term care residents and employees a COVID-19 shot is just the start. It's a reminder to everyone that thankfully the COVID-19 crisis is finally ending in long-term care facilities with the end of the second wave and vaccines. You know, the work is not done. We still need to make sure we have enough trained staff on site. We improve working conditions. We uh, legislate the rights of family caregivers. And we start the process to end for-profit long-term care because we just know that, you know, the people we love and cherish who built our society are seniors. They deserve much more than just a shot in the arm. Well said. And yes, improving or better yet, overhauling our failed long-term care system should be, I think, an election issue. 
And we may soon see if it is. The Ritz could be dropped, who knows, at any moment now. Um, and we'll also come to see which party or party leaders are committed to making that change happen. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Calls for mandatory vaccinations for education and healthcare workers are growing stronger by the day. But it doesn't sound like Premier Doug Ford is budging on his stance. We get more from Global's Dave Woodard. I just don't believe in forcing uh, anyone get a vaccination that doesn't want it. Well, Premier Ford says he hopes that everyone gets vaccinated. He doesn't believe in forcing them to do so. But he also says he's been pleading with healthcare workers to get the shot. If you're in the healthcare industry, please just go and get a, a vaccination. And according to the Premier, it seems to be working. The numbers I'm hearing are in the, the low to high 90s. As far as teachers are concerned, he wouldn't say that mandatory testing would be a part of back to school, but says he hopes that all teachers would get vaccinated. Dave Woodard at Global News. Now this comes as the Ontario Liberal Party is calling on the Ford government to elevate plans to prevent a fourth wave of the COVID-19 pandemic in the province. And among the measures being proposed by party leader Stephen Del Duca is a mandatory vaccination system for uh, any frontline worker or healthcare worker or, or education worker in this province. And as you heard, a notion that the premier has already shot down. Del Duca also calling for a secure proof of vaccination system in this province. Well, let's chat with the Ontario Liberal Party leader, Stephen Del Duca. He joins us now. Stephen, good morning. How are you? I'm great, Rick. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Uh, maybe we'll start with mandatory vaccines. Shouldn't right. Ontarians have the right to say no to get vaccinated? Well, listen, I think, uh, you know, I think we've learned so much throughout this pandemic over the last now nearly year and a half. There's been so much suffering and we all hope that we're so much closer to the end of this uh, of this crisis. And I think, in particular sectors where there are a lot of there's a lot of vulnerability. I'm talking about schools, hospitals, doctors' offices, nursing homes. I think it's only fair to expect that everybody who's working in those kinds of situations would get the double dose. And look, I don't want this to be punitive. I don't want anyone to lose their job. I think there are plenty of ways for this to be dealt with creatively. I know there are people who are legitimately vaccine hesitant. I'd want to work with them. I'd want to work with their employers or their unions if they're represented by a union to make sure that perhaps they're redeployed, perhaps that they're no, they're no longer patient or student facing. But I don't think in this case it's too much to ask. I think of my own daughters who are going to be heading into grade nine and grade five this coming September. We don't know what the situation is in their school. That scares me. That scares my wife. And I don't think it's too much to ask to be responsible at this point in time and make them, the vaccinations mandatory. So if a frontline healthcare professional or an education worker refuses to get the shot, you're saying there shouldn't be an outright penalty or, or, or a job loss in that case? Yeah, I don't want it to be punitive. Again, you know, I think of, uh, and I've had the chance to speak with those who work in nursing homes, for example. There are many, many personal support workers who come from communities that have been racialized or marginalized where there is legitimate vaccine hesitancy. I don't want them to lose their job. I want them to talk to us. I want them to talk to a doctor or a nurse practitioner. I want them to understand exactly why the vaccines are safe. And if, if all of that doesn't work, the possibility of redeploying them into different parts of the medical or healthcare system where they're not patient-facing or resident-facing or student-facing is, is perfectly fine with me. I, I suspect most, most workers in healthcare and education have probably done the right thing and gotten vaccinated. But I was really curious to hear the Premier say yesterday, and you played the clip, about the, quote, numbers he's hearing. I, you know, I'd love for him to share with all of us where he's hearing these numbers from because there is no centralized tracking. The Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Education are not tracking 
uh, where, uh, you know, how many education workers, how many healthcare workers are getting vaccinated. And I don't know about you, when I went to get my double dose, nobody asked me what I do for a living. No one asked my wife what I do for a living. So it feels to me like Doug is making it up on the back of a napkin, which he does repeatedly. That's not good enough at this critical point in the pandemic. I don't want a fourth wave, but if one has to come, I want it to be as minimal as possible with no loss of life and no loss of livelihood. And that's why we need to use every tool in the toolkit. Yeah, I agree with you. There's no way the province has any numbers on how many doctors or nurses or teachers have been vaccinated because I have my double dose. My wife has two shots. Both my kids who are, you know, late teens, early 20s have their shots. None of us have been asked what we right. do. So they they, right. they don't have this data. But let me ask you this. Health experts have said that a fourth wave is going to be among the unvaccinated. We know that that group is still pretty large. How do you convince those people to get a shot? Well, I think if they work, look, if they work in healthcare and education, my proposal to make it mandatory while respecting the human rights code, while not being punitive, I think would go a long way towards that. Uh, I think the stories that we see coming from from here in Ontario, but other parts of the world south of the border where uh, the Delta variant and other more um, more uh, transmissible variants are scary for people. I think a lot of that, that 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 information, those news stories will help a great deal. But the people I've spoken to who were hesitant at first, who've now gotten their vaccine uh, vaccines, a lot of it's come from, uh, in a good way, from like family pressure, from, you know, you want to see your grandparents, you want to see your parents, they've been vaccinated, you haven't, you know, in a, in a good way, in a positive way. Uh, it's almost like there's a, a bit of a benign guilt tripping into getting it done because it is the right thing to do. So I think, I think when you look at the whole sort of the whole picture, all of these things will help. But if you work in my daughter's school or you, you happen to be uh, employed in a nursing home where, you know, there's a senior who's vulnerable. I don't think it's too much to ask to say, you got to get the double dose. We want you to be safe. We want your residents and your students and your patients to be safe. That is how we get through this. If there's going to be a fourth wave, this is how we get through it. We're hearing from Stephen Del Duca. He is the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party here on the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick in for Bill this week. It seems like with schools reopening, with the border reopening, that a fourth wave, you know, with the with the unvaccinated number uh, where it is, a fourth wave is inevitable. Certainly, Dr. Moore, the new chief medical officer of health, has talked about that. So is the science table. Again, that's why I think uh, it's fine for Doug Ford to talk about encouraging people and urging them to do the right thing. But just if you think back to March of 2020 and everything that's happened since this was declared a pandemic, with all the shutdowns, with schools opening and closing, with the tragic loss of life in nursing homes. Surely, Rick, there have to have been lessons that we've all learned. One would hope that an individual in a position of being a premier would have learned so many lessons from the mistakes that he's made throughout this pandemic, mistakes that have been made across the board. Let me be clear about that. But when I hear Doug Ford speak like he spoke yesterday, it, it makes me feel like he's refusing stubbornly to learn the lessons of the pandemic so far and to do the right thing here. And I really I really hope he will change his mind. I'm not sure what the numbers are going to look like to, you know, enact a fourth wave declaration, whether it's, you know, a few hundred cases a day or, or we're back over a thousand, uh, you know, come September when things start, you know, opening up even further. Um, does that lead to more lockdowns, more restrictions, or are we past that part of this pandemic? Well, I don't think it needs to. But, you know, if we can just switch away from education and healthcare workers, I think the most effective tool to prevent lockdowns and closures is a standardized province-wide vaccine certificate. It's the other thing I called for yesterday. 
that, again, Doug Ford stubbornly said he doesn't want to do. Maybe the Fed should do it. Maybe, you know, whatever individual businesses or hospitals or, you know, entities or venues want to do, they should do it on their own. He doesn't believe in a certificate. His counterparts in Quebec and Manitoba, they're talking about doing provincial certificates. If we had a trustworthy, reliable, provincially standardized certificate, that would help that would help all of us. It would level the playing field. It would give clarity. Uh, and again, I don't think it's too much to ask. And the science table called for this a number of days ago as a very effective way of preventing more small business closures, more school closures. Uh, and, and so I, I just, for the life of me, don't understand why, why Doug's not even open to this conversation. He should be. That would be real, responsible leadership. The Premier has called that a uh, two-state system. I'm kind of paraphrasing. You obviously disagree. I think that's the most that's he said a lot of absurd things since becoming premier. That strikes me as just about the most absurd thing he said. Again, you know, I I don't know if he's suffering from a little bit of selective amnesia, but 17 months, people have lost their lives. Thousands of businesses have gone under. Kids are scarred. Mental health challenges through the roof. And the fact that there is an, an opportunity and a tool that's sitting there that could be deployed and deployed effectively. So because we are all supposed to be in this together, and he just stubbornly refuses to do it. I don't know why. He's not explaining himself properly on this one. His counterparts in other provinces are looking at it. Other parts of the world are doing it. It's, it's you know, <laughs> nobody wants the fourth wave. Should it come to be tough? I don't want another loss of life anywhere in this province due to COVID. I don't want my daughter's schools to close again at any point in time. So why a person in, in a position of leadership wouldn't just say, we've got to do it all. Everything's got to be on the table. And we're going to get through this together. That would be competent, compassionate, responsible leadership. And Doug Ford is, again, demonstrating he doesn't have it. Stephen Del Duca is our guest. He's the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Rick Samprin in for Bill Kelly this week. There are rumblings that a federal election is on the way. When do you expect Ontarians to return to the polls? Well, I know, look, by law, we're supposed to be uh, voting officially in Ontario on June 2nd of 2022. So one would presume that the campaign here would begin in, I guess, early May, about 28 days ahead of June the 2nd. And so uh, that's what I'm expecting to be the case. I don't know if Doug Ford's got some other plan in mind. Who knows? Uh, But uh, we are gearing up. We're building slow but, you know, steady momentum towards a a May-June election here in the, the province for next year. If there is a federal election come fall, we, we do want some separation, right? I mean, there's a lot of people who don't want an election period during a pandemic. Two back-to-back in Ontario and the federal, it could be that could be a lot. Uh, that would be a lot even for those of us who work in politics. <laughs> I, won't, I won't lie. I mean, it's campaigns are tough, right, you, 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 for everybody, including especially for the voters who have to listen to, uh, I, you know, it's an exercise in democracy. It's important for all of us, but they can be tough and grueling for everybody. So, if there is to be a federal campaign starting at some point in, in August, uh, I think it'll be probably best for all of us to have a little bit of daylight between the two. Uh, and I, but, you know, I will say as well, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the next provincial election. I think, especially given what's happened during this pandemic, I suspect there will be some really stark choices for voters right across this province about how we build a new normal. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to that, that healthy clash of ideas. Mr. Del Duca, appreciate the time today and uh, best of luck down the road. 
Thanks so much, Rick. You take care. Stephen Del Duca is the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. You know, has some interesting things to say in terms of mandatory vaccination for frontline uh, healthcare workers, for teachers, uh, teaching assistants, those in the education field. You know, it's it, it's really almost impossible. I know we chatted about this on the show yesterday in terms of forcing or enticing or incentivizing, whatever the word you want to use, to um, get your employees at the end of the day vaccinated, and especially those who are currently on staff. You know, yesterday's discussion was about, uh, more or less, about, you know, new employees applying for jobs. If they're not fully vaccinated, they're going to be, I think, in many cases at the back of the line, or at least behind those candidates who are fully vaccinated. If you're a teacher or a frontline healthcare worker, and I can't think of too many who are not vaccinated, especially in the healthcare field, um, you know, and you're looking for a new opportunity or trying to go from part time to full time, not getting that double dose or even that one shot, I, I think you're going to be passed over or looked over for those opportunities. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.